open God's holy book to the letter of 1 Peter. Our focus this morning will be on chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading 4.12 through 5.11. 1 Peter 4.12 through 5.11. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us of our arrogant 
attempts at independent spirituality. Ignoring the good gift of elders and shepherds to see over our souls. Forgive us for how often we regard such things as less important, really unimportant. And so by your grace now, strengthen your fellowship to be obedient to your word for the glory of the name of Christ and his gospel. In his name we pray, amen. Often, secondary issues, though truly secondary, are critical. In true evangelical fellowship, our our fellowship with those who are truly evangelical at large, we might speak of those truths which are essential to such fellowship. A right understanding of the gospel, justification by faith alone, penal substitutionary atonement, Understanding the inerrancy of the Word of God. These things are essential indeed. But a danger in identifying such doctrines as essential is that of regarding other doctrines that are not essential as unimportant. So we think non-essential means unimportant. Truths like church polity, how a church is governed, elders, deacons, the sacraments, we think those things not as important. In a conversation with Jonathan Lehman, Mark Dever recently mentioned the problem of Americans having two speeds intellectually, essential and unimportant. American Christians need to upgrade from their simple automatic transitions, forward-reverse, essential, unimportant, to a manual Transmission. We need a standard with a lot more gears intellectually. In that conversation, Jonathan Lehman spoke of, ha- of, of whenever this is done, that we can pit the gospel against things that protect the gospel. And so someone would ask, which is more important, your children or your home? Well, of course, the children are more important, but that doesn't mean that the home is unimportant. A house is a great means to a, a, a great means whereby you provide and protect your children. And so we shouldn't be so gospel-centered that we think matters like church polity are unimportant. Rather, because the gospel is so important, things like how a church is structured and governed are so important for that reason because they're there to protect the gospel. If you want a vehicle to go, having an engine is more essential than having a radiator. It's more essential, but that doesn't mean that the radiator is unimportant. You may go for a bit without it, but soon you will go no further. And so a disregard for matters of church polity and government is why so many churches are left steaming on the side of the road en route to the heavenly Jerusalem. There is gospel failure because there was first failure on this front. Here Peter addresses elders, and it's critical that you, the church, realize how vital these things are. One family came to this fellowship 
because when they were looking for a new, they were looking for a church, they took it as a given that there would be a right understanding of the gospel. Wherever they're looking, they're looking for those kind of churches, that there would be a proper reverence of the word of God as the word of God. Those were just givens. The only churches they would look at would be those kind of churches. But the next criteria on the list was a right understanding of church leadership. Do they have elders, plural, in place? And they knew this was so important because if, if a church doesn't have proper leadership, how can you expect other things to fall in place? If they don't get that right, where else are they going wrong? They knew that a church without a proper understanding of leadership is like a home where there are no parents, or worse, where you have parents who don't understand what it means to be parents. If you are a sheep, can there be many things more important than knowing what a shepherd is and what he is to do, what he is to look like? Whenever you look for a church, don't look for a church with leaders that are charismatic or entertaining or successful or connected. Look for what Peter speaks of here. The spiritual homelessness of many of God's children is evident in that whenever you say elder, many don't have a clue what you're talking about. What's an elder? What's he do? What's that about? We have seen in this letter that the saints, the set-apart ones, are strange to this world. What's unfortunate is that common biblical language is so strange and foreign to so many who claim to be saints. Church models of leadership are so often more worldly than they are biblical, even in otherwise biblical churches. If we're not clear on this, this is how great our loss can be. Sheep are left unshepherded. You remember Jesus, we're told, looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If we don't get this right, Sheep are harassed and helpless. So many flocks don't have a shepherd. They have a wolf in sheep's garb. Or they have a hireling that flees at the sight of a wolf. A hireling that's in it for the money, a career professional. A hireling that's fleecing the sheep, not feeding the sheep. Elders are shepherds. The command, respond, the, the, the command here is to shepherd the flock, verse 2. The word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd. Here it's a verb. Elders are to shepherd. Elders is presbyteros, from which we get presbyterian, presbyter. It's the most common term in the scriptures for the office of pastor, shepherd, teacher, minister. It's the most common term. While elders are shepherds, there's only one place in the New Testament where the noun form, shepherd, pastor, there's only one place where that's used. Ephesians 4.11. 
Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So elders is the most common, and pastor is the least common. Shepherd, the least common, used only one time in the New Testament. Now the preference for pastor over elder isn't sinful, but it has promoted biblical illiteracy. It works in this way. You're reading through your Bible and you read elder and you just read over it. And you don't understand that's what your pastor is supposed to be. Or you're wanting to think about pastors. And you don't think to go in your Bible and read about elders. Also, elders are overseers, verse 2. Exercising oversight. It's the verb form of the noun we have as overseer or in older translations, bishop in the New Testament. Bishop coming from the Greek word there, episkopos, from which we get episcopal, episcopalian. So whenever Paul lays out the qualifications for an elder in Titus, he first speaks of them as elders and then later uses the term overseers or bishop. This is the second most common term used in the scripture. Elders is the most used, overseers second most used, and pastor only being used once. All three terms associated with the spiritual leadership of the church are used together right here. This shows you they're all the same office. A pastor is an elder, is a bishop, is an overseer, is a presbyter, an elder. So we are true Presbyterians and Episcopalians. Because we understand those to be offices not that are over the church, not that are outside the church. Those are offices that are all within the church, within a local body. Every pastor is a presbyter and a bishop. Related to this, another thing needs to be said regarding getting in our minds what an elder is. And you have to answer the question of how many? How many should there be? And the answer is more than one. How many? More than one. There can be more than two. There should be more than one. There can be more than two. There should be more than one. How essential this is to the health of a flock can be seen in this. Whenever Paul was returning from one of his missionary journeys and he's revisiting the churches he's established, we're told in Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, not when they had appointed an elder in each church, when they had appointed elders in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. These are young churches full of young Christians. Where did they pull the elders from? From the body, from the flock. They were simply the most mature sheep in the flock who desired to be a pastor, who had a God-given call, and they were set apart to lead that flock into further maturity. He's just planted these churches, but elders need to happen that quickly for the good of the church. Read through your New Testament and you will see that in the overwhelming majority of instances, elders is plural. Whenever it comes in singular, it's at a point like you see Peter speaking of himself as an elder. But whenever church leadership is spoken of in the local body, it's in the plural. And this is just overlooked so often. An instance like James 5.14, Is anyone among you sick? 
let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So pick up a concordance or use your Bible app on your phone and put in elders and elder and read through the passages and you'll see this. Dangers are so prevalent whenever a pastor tries to fly solo. Dangers to him and thus dangers to the flock. Now why is Peter addressing the shepherds at this point in the letter? 5 and verse 1, so, so. This exhortation doesn't hang in the air. Something has prompted it. Something has provoked it. So, so how, how do 4.12 through 19 provoke and prompt this exhortation? And the first clue comes in seeing how 4.13 is echoed in 5.1. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And Paul exhorts them, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This pattern of suffering and then subsequent glory occurs again and again, forming the tapestry that is First Peter. Suffering, then glory. And then you look ahead in verse 4, and Peter says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter, in this letter, has again and again pleaded with these saints to suffer for good in hope of future glory. And now he's simply taking the major point of the letter and aiming it specifically at shepherds and telling them, in light of the present suffering, this is the good that you are called to do. And do it because of the hope of future glory. See, if the saints are thought strange in this world, and mocked, and ridiculed, and persecuted as a result. What of the shepherds? We're all sheep. Shepherds are first sheep. We're all sheep. But some sheep are also shepherds. Remember Jesus said, they will hate us because they hate Him. Now if they hate the sheep of the shepherd. What do you think is their disposition to those who are under-shepherds of the shepherd? You remember on the eve of His crucifixion, Jesus quoted Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Strike the shepherd, sheep scatter. The world has not tired of this tested tactic. Strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. They cannot now aim at the chief shepherd as he sits at the right hand of the Father, exalted in all glory with all enemies under his feet. They cannot strike him, but they still take aim at under-shepherds. Approved but nasty tactic in war is to target officers. Satan is no gentleman on the battlefield. 
So, so, so. Can you see why there is this so? Because of present suffering, because of what you will endure as a shepherd. Do this task, this good that you're called to, because of the hope of glory. So now you know who is exalted and why, but this has all really just been to get us into the text. Now we can see how it is that Peter's exalt, uh, exhorting, excuse me, in verse 1. How does Peter exhort them? And how he exhorts them is an example of what he's going to exhort, as we'll see. Now there is a difference between exhortation and command before we, before we get there. You have to understand what, what Peter's doing here. Paul indicates the difference when he writes to Philemon, accordingly, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal. It's the same word that we have here as exhort. So let me read it again. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to exhort you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Rather than command as an apostle, he appeals as an old man and a prisoner. And so Peter here, rather than command as an apostle, he wants to exhort as a fellow elder. He pleads, he strongly urges us. Peter wants to take the tone, not of an apostle with authority, but of a fellow elder doing the same task. He wants to speak not as a general from HQ, but as a fellow private in the trenches with you. These are the three ways he appeals. First, and as a fellow elder. So empathy, not authority is the tone. Second, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter was witness to the suffering that Jesus endured throughout his life. But you remember whenever Christ was in agony in the garden? Peter fell asleep. Whenever Christ is arrested, Peter is one of those sheep that scatters. So how is it that Peter speaks of him being a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Well, this does reference his apostleship. As an apostle, he witnesses, that is, he testifies to the suffering of Christ, the gospel, the good news of Christ. Christ dying for sinners. So whenever... Peter does speak of his apostleship. You see how it's in veiled terms? And the emphasis is not on his authority as an apostle, but the revelation that he's received as an apostle and communicates the message he delivers. Third, he appeals as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And I think as the context will make clear, this this idea of being a fellow elder is linked into being a fellow partaker of this glory. Now, why does Peter exhort and appeal in this way? Peter wants to empathize with these shepherds as they suffer in doing this good work because of the glory that they will also share in, holding that before them, encouraging them in it. So now we come to the exhortation. What does Peter urge these shepherds to do shepherd Peter simply wants shepherds to shepherd 
He wants overseers to oversee. The job description isn't complex. The plea is not for them to be creative, to be entrepreneurs, to be visionaries, to develop programs and strategies and and to, to be successful CEOs in this way. Familiarity with present suffering and future glory as they are the lot of the saints. Familiarity with suffering and glory will simply cause elders to want to shepherd sheep and oversee souls. Familiarity with such glory and suffering as is the lot of the saints in union with Christ will purge the church of much frivolous silliness. The underground church doesn't put on Easter bazaars. But I guarantee you, they know much more about the resurrection life of Jesus Christ than those that do. Leaders who know that suffering is the now of the saints and glory their future will not want to put energy into such things that will perish. They'll care about souls that will endure for eternity. And while pastor is the least used title in the scripture, shepherding is the most comprehensive metaphor for the task of an elder. Elders are to feed the sheep, lead the sheep, know the sheep, protect the sheep. That's the task of a shepherd. And feeding comes to the fore in all of those. It's whenever you minister the word that then you really know the soul of a sheep. Because it's the word that pierces and divides and exposes and convicts. It's the word that illumines. It says I minister the word, not because of some kind of gifting or intellectual quality that I have in and of myself. It's the word of God. As Luther said, we stood back and I stood with my Emsdorf, drank my beer, and the word of God did it all. It's as we minister the word that we lead the sheep. Our concern should be that the sheep follow our Lord. Not ourselves. We minister the word knowing that Jesus promised, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. It's as we minister the word that we protect the flock, thereby they know truth, can discern lies. Peter no doubt, urges so. Because the words of one of his final conversations with the Lord before his ascension were still reverberating in his soul all these years later. John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, 
Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now who are the shepherds to shepherd? What sheep are they to feed? Verse 2. The flock of God that is among them. First, the flock is the flock of God. It's not their flock. They have no license, no liberty for experimentation. They're not to shape the sheep according to their desire. No kind of funny business like uh, the patriarch who tried to make the sheep look as he wanted them to for his profit and his gain. We are stewards. We are servants as elders. Paul explained to the Corinthians, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The calling of the shepherd is not to be creative, it is to be faithful. Too many elders behave as if the church was theirs, and too many sheep respond accordingly. Second, they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. So, Jesus' shepherding is big, but an elder's shepherding is small. Jesus' shepherding is big, but an elder's is small. They're to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Jesus shepherds the church. Elders are to shepherd a church. Shepherds must be among the sheep. Jesus is omnipresent. We're not. So, one uh, you, uh, you cannot be shepherded by satellite, by radio waves, by internet. Your soul has to be overseen. And for your soul to be overseen, it really does require that your body be seen. One may be a preacher without a church. You can be a preacher without a church, but one cannot be a pastor or an elder or an or a overseer without a church to pastor, to oversee, to elder. Related to this, we should only call elders pastors. That term's used far too liberally. You should only call elders pastors. Elders need to know who their sheep are, but sheep need to know who their elders are. 
And so if a man is called a pastor, he should be qualified as one, he should be tested as one, and he should be held accountable as one. Embrace whatever awkwardness there might be in calling other staff, other personnel, other people who serve the body, calling them director or leader or whatever awkward term there might be. Don't even call them minister because there's too much equivalence in our mind between minister and elder and pastor and and so forth. Let it be known, let it be clear who pastors and elders and overseers are so that the church holds them accountable as such, sees them as such. Next, Peter goes underneath the task of shepherding to the heart of shepherding, providing three contrasts of how it is and how it is not to be done in verses 2 through 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Shepherding should not be a have to, but a want to. There should be compulsion, but it needs to arise from within, not from without. Second, elders are to shepherd not for shameful gain, but eagerly. For those shepherds who do want to, they mustn't want to because of the money. Jude 12 speaks of false shepherds who feed themselves. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul speaks of those who are peddlers of God's word. In his next letter, Peter will write at length of false teachers saying that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Proclaimers of the prosperity gospel fit the bill. Prosperity gospel teaching provides prosperity for the preachers, but not their poor parishioners. And so, because a shepherd protects the sheep, let me name names. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and their ilk are deceived deceivers. And they are in it for shameful gain. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. The fruit is obvious. And Timothy, Paul said that if anyone aspires the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. The desire shouldn't be for the gain. There should be the desire for the task, for the work itself. Third, Elders are to shepherd, not domineering, but being an example to the flock. Where there are greedy hands, there are heavy hands. The hands of a true shepherd will not be heavy, though they may be firm. Shepherding the sheep should be showing the sheep how to be sheep. Being an example, how to hear the master's voice and follow. Peter is doing that here. Do you see in this exhortation, he's wanting to show these elders how to be elders, not domineering, but being an example. See in Peter that shepherding is not heavy-handed, but humble-hearted. And to such shepherds, this promise comes. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd's appearing is what is spoken of in verse 1 as the glory that is going to be revealed. His appearing 
is that glory. And this glory, this appearing, this revelation, revealing, has been spoken of repeatedly throughout Peter. In 1.3, he speaks of our living hope. In 1.4, of our imperishable inheritance. And he says that these are 1.5, part of our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This last day, this last time is called the day of visitation, the day of Christ's visitation in 2.12. And this day is the end of all things, 4.7. The end of all things, that day whenever Christ will judge all the, His enemies, the enemies of His church, and His church will be vindicated. And this world that is perishing will, be, will expire, and all things will be made new as the inheritance of the, of the saints. Now, besides verse 1, the glory that is going to be revealed, the three texts that most bring out this revelation and this appearing are 1.7, and 4.13. In 1.7, Peter tells us that the tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, in verse, four, in verse 4, you just have a specific application of that truth that is held forth for all of us in Christ. In 1.13, Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's just a particular grace that will be brought to faithful shepherds on the day of Christ appearing. In 4.13, Peter commanded us, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So again, this is just a specific application of the broad truth that is all ours in Christ. This is the good that shepherds are called to do in light of present suffering because of the hope of future glory. Now this unfading crown is the shepherd's imperishable inheritance. But we need to get the right metaphor in our minds. If you're picturing the golden crown besotted with jewels such as lies in the Tower of London, I'm afraid you got the wrong picture. I think the image is of that laurel wreath. The victor's crown that would be bestowed in honor upon a general having won a war, or the gladiator, or the Olympian who has won. Now, just as in our time, such a laurel wreath, the glory of such a victory would quickly fade. Be it even a Lombardi of pure silver, the glory thereof quickly fades. But here is a crown of victory and honor that's unfading. And the reason that it's unfading is because whenever it's put upon you, it is a partaking of His glory, His victory, His honor. 
Saints, remember, this is an application of a general truth. Hear this for you as well. On that day when the saints are crowned by our King with such victory and honor, it is nothing more than a sharing in everything that He is and that He has accomplished and that He deserves. All the crowns upon our head will speak to the glory of our King. And because this speaks of His glory, His honor, we will praise Him and rejoice all the more. What a Savior that such as we will wear eternal crowns of victory and honor in His kingdom. What must the King be if mere peasants, no rebellious traitors deserving nothing but execution but miraculously pardoned by grace, if such as we wear crowns that last forever, what must the king be like? If the king's glory is so great that pardoned traitors wear eternal crowns. Now, having exhorted the elders, you might expect Peter to turn to the flock, and he does. But he does so specifically targeting a segment within the flock. From elders, verse 5, you turn to youngers. Likewise, you who are younger. So does this mean that elder really has more to do with age than maturity? Well, biblically speaking, maturity is age that counts. Maturity indicates a passing of courses. Whereas many who have a lot of age have been in remedial classes for quite some time. The qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, uh, 3 and, and Titus 1 necessitate maturity, not age. Now for sure, where the two coincide, you have a great treasure. But the quality necessitated by Scripture is maturity. So then does younger here simply mean those who are spiritually immature? Well, that's an implication, but I think by younger he simply means he is referring to age in this point, those who are younger. And Peter, so he isn't speaking to the immature directly as such, but he's speaking to that segment within the body that would be most prone to this kind of immaturity, the kind of immaturity of disregarding spiritual authority. The point is not that if you're older, you're exempt. From submitting to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There's no qualification, no exemptions mentioned there. So it's not that when you're older you don't have to, or that whenever you're older you don't struggle to. He's just taking specific aim at the most likely to sin in this way. Being subject to the elders expresses humility, and humility is, is the calling of all within the body, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, shepherds and sheep both. Now, the most important word of this final sentence, though, we're just looking at that one phrase, the first sentence, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders, The word that's most important there, I think, is easily overlooked. Likewise. Likewise. How does that likewise work? Elders. Shepherd. 
Likewise, you who are younger, be subject. How does likewise fit in between those two phrases? Some proposes it relates to humility. Elders are displayed in one way, the sheep in another. It's true, but I don't think that's why this likewise is here. I don't think that's the best answer. Peter exhorted the elders because of present suffering and future glory. That's what the so was about. And I think now he's telling the church at large, likewise, it goes back to the so, because of present suffering and future glory, be subject to the elders. Until you unpack the so of verse 1, the likewise of verse 5 falls flat. In verse 5, he turns to begin addressing the church at large. Clothe yourselves with humility, all of you. And all these commands that follow are addressing the church. And I think the likewise goes to all these commands that follow. And that he does want to exhort them in the same way because of present suffering and future glory, I think is made clear when you get to verse 10. And he ends this exhortation to the church the same way he ended his exhortation to elders. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Elders are to shepherd because of present suffering and future glory as they're the lot of the saints in Christ. Sheep are to submit to good shepherds because of present suffering and future glory. Do you see how important these things are? Though not essential, how crucial they are. But because we only see two categories, essential and not important, we have solo pastors who though they believe this to be so, They believe that the church should be led by a plurality of elders who should elder. Though we have solo pastors who believe this, they won't lead the flock into obedience. Or they take a stance where this kind of leading lasts for decades, it seems like. Well, they still aren't ready. Call the sheep to obedience. Bring them before the Word of God. And call them to obedience because these things are so important. Because the gospel is so important. Because we only have two categories, we have sheep who do believe this. But they're in a church that doesn't practice this. But hey, the church gets the essentials right. Well, because you see that those essentials are so essential, confront the leadership. Ask them to do this for the sake of your soul and the sake of the gospel. And if they won't, if you don't have a shepherd that won't hear 
the master's voice and follow him in this regard, perhaps you should find another shepherd, shepherds. Because we only have these two categories, we who do practice these things can so easily take them for granted. May we, all of us, repent and realize the seriousness. This is how important church polity is. This is how important elders are. This is how important doctrine concerning the church is. We suffer. Glory awaits. We need shepherds to oversee our souls as we make the pilgrimage home. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our sins. Raise up godly elders in your churches for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the souls of your sheep. In Christ's name, amen.